1: Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler.
0: Good morning. And before we get started today, I want to address the, the troubling case of the death of Sandra Koch. Sandra Koch was a capital case investigator for the California Eastern District Federal Public Defender's Office and, of course, a member of the investigator community. Sandra went missing Sunday, August 4th. Her body was found a few days later in a park in Northern California. Um, Unfortunately, Randy, Alana, who has been put back in prison on parole violation, is a person of interest. Alana evidently knew Sandra 20 years ago but he has been convicted of rape, murder, and kidnapping since that time. Sandra's abduction and death is a case that has certainly hit the PI community pretty hard. Our condolences to Sandra's family and friends and co-workers. So today we bring you another sad tale, the tale of Dottie Kaler, who's been missing since June 12, 1985. Her husband, June Kaler, is still a person of interest. Jill claimed he put Dottie on the BART train, the Bay Area Rapid Transit train, and that's the last anybody ever saw of her. Dottie's car was found in the BART parking lot along with her purse. Our purse is important because Dottie suffered from agoraphobia. We'll come back to that in a second. Her purse was her means that she used to cope with her agoraphobia. She carried her purse everywhere in her purse, everything she needed, such as her bee sting kit, because she had a severe bee sting allergy. And so she always carried that bee sting kit with her everywhere she went. Five days later, Jill reported Dottie missing after pressure from Dottie's friends and from her sister, Diane. And, of course, you know, as we know, she hasn't been seen since, almost 30 years. That five days, ensuing five days from June 12th, when Jewel said he took her to the bart station and when she was reported missing or when her friends and sister found out she was nowhere to be found, are unaccounted for by Jewel. I usually don't talk about cases where I've been personally involved, but Dottie's case has certainly haunted me for almost 30 years. And because she hasn't been found and we haven't resolved it, of course that feels like a failure. And any investigator knows you ever always have one case, maybe, that you feel like, you know, you didn't finish. And this case is unfinished. So joining me today, I'm delighted to have Joan Morris. Joan Morris has been a newspaper reporter for 35 years. She's reported on topics as varied as a prison riot, two Super Bowls, the landing of the space shuttle in New Mexico Desert, and, of course, the disappearance of Dottie Kaler. She's worked at the Contra Costa Times for 25 years, and her articles, a series published in the San Francisco Bay Area Contra Costa Times, her articles were instrumental in getting local law enforcement to reopen the cold case. So we're very grateful to Joan, and she wrote tremendous detailed articles. Uh, also joining the show is Naughty Bumbo. Nani Bumbo is a private investigator and owner of Professional Inquiry Associates. He has investigated civil and criminal cases for the past 10 years. He's currently employed as a staff investigator for San Francisco's Cartwright Law Firm, where he investigates complex civil plaintiff cases. So welcome to the show, you two. Thank you very much. This is a bit of a reunion <laughs> for us. <laughs> we, we, can, we, we reconnect... About once a year surrounding the date of Dottie's disappearance. And uh, we have done this for years. So, um, Joan, uh, before you take us to the timeline, let me just address the agoraphobia issue. For those of listeners that don't know, agoraphobia is a persistent and a bit abnormal fear of public places or open areas. Um, They frequently also have a panic disorder. But people with mild agoraphobia live normal lives, usually avoiding anxiety-provoking situations. Sometimes the agoraphobia has been brought on by a traumatic event. We don't know what caused Dottie's agoraphobia, but we do know that she was somewhat incapacitated and homebound. And um, that's why her purse is so important, because that's how she coped. With her agoraphobia as having everything she would ever want to need, ever want to have when she was outside her home in her purse. So she did take short trips after having um, considerable therapy and support of her friends. So with that background, Joan, could you take us through the timeline of overview? Um,
2: sure. I'll start kind of uh, way back. Um, Dottie was born in a small town in Ohio in 1944, and um, she had kind of a, a basic childhood for a uh, you know small-town girl with an older sister who excelled in school and, and overshadowed Dottie somewhat, and that's probably where some of her insecurities started. Mm. But in uh, 1964, her sister, Diane, had moved out to Berkeley and was enjoying, you know, the lifestyle there and, and talked Dottie into moving. And uh, so she came out here in 1964, and she had been um, trained in at a secretarial school, which she had done really well, and had been working for a law firm. So she got a job out here. And, you know, there, I think... Um, you know, there were times when she was very outgoing and happy, and there were times when she was very closed in. So, again, another sign that, you know, she had some psychological issues that she was dealing with. And um, Diane had moved. They lived in an apartment with another friend, and the friend had moved out, and Diane had moved in with her boyfriend, and Dottie was kind of left on her own. And they found her a new place and new roommates, but she... Um, You know, she was still kind of withdrawn, and so they encouraged her to get a job at the university at uh, UC Berkeley. And she did that, and in the early 1970s, she met a man and fell uh, deeply in love with him. And his name, he told her, was Jim Rupp. And that turned out, actually, to be a big lie, and everything he told her was a lie about his life. His name was actually Joel Kaler, he was married and had a child. And, um, but Dottie apparently was so taken with him, um, I think he may have been her first and perhaps only boyfriend. But, um, she eventually, after four years of this affair, she eventually badgered, pleaded, annoyed him enough, I don't know, but, uh, that he sought a divorce and they got married. And the marriage, by all accounts, was not a happy one. There were a lot of issues. Um, Joel worked for the U.S. Forest Service, and he he was gone a lot on business trips, and Dottie was left alone. And they had a house in Pleasant Hill, and that house became like a cocoon to her, Mm
1: -hmm. and
2: whatever agoraphobia that she had had earlier in her life became more magnified. She was very isolated there, and so she stopped pretty much leaving her house but she soon began to discover that joel was having a series of affairs and she could be kind of a bulldog when it came to that she would bear <laughs> out true. the information and she would write to the other woman quite nasty letters actually but then they often ended up being friends, mm-hmm. the woman that he was cheating with, and Dottie, they would kind of commiserate
0: about what was had been going on. And she was amazing, wasn't she, Jonah? Tracking, finding out who these women were, and tracking them down, and getting an oh, address yeah. and connecting with them.
2: Yeah. In a in an age when there was no internet, she was a very good detective for not even leaving her house most of the time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So. Um, Things were kind of staggering along, and in, in, on Thanksgiving of 1981, there was an altercation at the house, and um, Joel later claimed self-defense and claimed that Dottie had attacked him with a pair of scissors, and so police didn't file any charges, but Dottie ended up in the emergency room with a huge gash on her face, on her forehead, and bruised lips, and she had told Um, police and medical officials that Joel had hit her with. They said a typing stand. It's like a small table that holds a a typewriter. And um, she wanted a divorce at that time and he refused. But just as she had tracked down all of his other women and kept tabs on him, she started planning to get a divorce. And it Mm -hmm. took her four years to get everything into place. But in... She started um, working on her agoraphobia. She started going to um, outreach classes. She signed up for a woman in transition class for women that were contemplating divorce or had been suddenly widowed. And she started making friends and she started going out more. She was still, you know, cautious. She didn't like driving over bridges or through tunnels, but she made a very close friend and she kept a file cabinet with all this information about Jule, copies of letters that he had um, written and other women had written to him, letters she had written to his parents and to the other women and things like that. She kept that at that friend's garage. She opened a post office box. She opened her own banking account without Jule's knowledge. And she was set.
0: She was planning.
2: Yes, she was ready to leave this marriage. And the opportunity arose in mid-1985 when Jewel's job in San Francisco had been um, discontinued, and he had accepted a transfer to Salt Lake City. And they argued about it, but um, she got him to go to a divorce mediator, and they worked out a plan that she was going to stay in Concord, Yeah, I I think I said Pleasant Hill before, but a house in Concord. And um, she was going to stay in the house figure out a way to pay him for his half, and he was moving to Salt Lake. He didn't like that idea because Dottie hadn't worked while they had been married, and so he felt she had provided no financial contribution to the house and wasn't entitled to half. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Uh, Money seems to be the crux of most of their of his side of the argument anyway. Hers was his infidelity. But uh, as you said, on, August, on June 12th, um, he says he took her to BART, that she had a um, overnight bag and her purse, and refused to tell him where she was going, but that she was going to stay away until he left on the 24th. And no one's ever seen her since.
0: And that, uh, that part is significant because um, Joel claims that he found the car um, the next day parked next to his at the BART parking lot. Now, this is interesting because anybody who has ever ridden the Bay Area Transit uh, trains in, California, in Northern California knows that in the middle of the day it's almost impossible to find a parking place <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the BART parking lot, much less next to a car whom you know. So he says
2: he found the... He had had also claimed that he took her to the Pleasant Hill BART station, but that her car was found next to his in the Concord BART station. That's true. That's true.
0: And then he says um, the purse was in the car, and he returned to the car every day and left her a note, um, which is also a little bizarre. And so by the time Diane and her her sister Diane and her friends Start trying to reach her on Monday, because they 'd been' trying, they'd been calling the friends had been calling he kept telling her telling them that she was not there if they even reached him at all, and then by Monday, five days later they 're panicked because they know that they would not have known that they would have known that she was going to be away and that she would have been in contact with them
2: yeah, Diane was hopeful that Dottie had finally gotten the nerve and had left Joel but her friend her best friend shelly knew that that couldn't be true because if dottie had ran she would have run to her and there was no communication at all with her friend shelly
0: yeah and then when um and and uh, let, let me say diane also had some um some disabilities about driving on freeways so By the time she gets to the house, a couple days pass, nothing's happened, Uh, Diane goes out to the house, and she finds a moving truck in front of the house with everything in the house loaded up on it. Now, Dottie had been careful to divide everything up, Jules' belongings in one room that he was going to take with him, and anything that he wasn't going to take with him was in another room, and everything was loaded up. And... Diane and Jewel had a confrontation, a pretty huge confrontation, with Diane trying to pull Dottie's things off the truck, and Jewel saying no, he was going to take them with her. And ended up, they ended up leaving Dottie's things, and, or some of them at least, and leaving her car. And,
2: yeah. Um, also, in that intervening time between the time he says he left her at BART and he reported her missing, he had painted the inside of the house, poured a concrete patio in the backyard, and hired a realtor to rent the house out.
0: Correct. It
2: doesn't make any sense
0: if if the (laughs) woman is coming back to live in the house. And actually the following Saturday, so this is just 10 days later, the house is is listed for rent. Um, In fact, we have the ad where he listed it for rent. Yeah. Okay. So... So this is a problem. She was an adult in 1985. Even though there was some evidence that there might have been foul play, there was law enforcement didn't t- didn't take a case unless there was solid evidence. A missing person as an adult didn't mean anything. It's not like it's it's nothing like it's done today. It's almost 30 years ago. They had many other things, law enforcement had many other things to do that were on their plates. Of course, they do now as well. But that, at yeah, that time, nothing was done regarding investigating her disappearance.
2: Yeah, they did do a little. Uh, they Dottie's dog had died in May, and uh, they dug up the grave and only found the dog.
0: But not until much later. That, oh, the, I'm nothing, sorry. Yeah, nothing. And excuse me, we... I'm just being notified. We need to take a quick break. So we'll be right back with uh, Nadi and Joan and talk more about Dottie.
1: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! NCISS, and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at one 472 5788 That's one 472 5788 You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Ken
0: Morrison. Paper reporter and Naughty Bumbo as a private investigator, both worked on investigating the disappearance of Dottie Kaler. In 19, uh, she disappeared in 1985. Um, and what I was just saying, we were talking about the um, missing persons as an adult. What happened that is significant with this case is, yes, the police did get involved at a later date, but nothing really happened initially when the evidence is still fresh or potential evidence could still be fresh. So there was uh, sometime later, and I'm not exactly sure how, can't remember now, how long that was. Does either one of you remember um, when the sergeant went and talked to um, Jewel in the
3: driveway? Well, it had to be before he left for Salt Lake, so it was probably a few days after uh, he actually reported her missing, uh, from, from the best of what we've been able to find out. Now, actually,
0: I'm sorry. Excuse me. It was at, when he came back to pick up her car, so it was a it was a couple oh. three months.
3: Oh, okay, okay. I was uh, misremembering that. Um, the interesting thing about that particular report by that sergeant, um, you know, mostly it was sort of pro forma discussion, and most of it apparently took place. Uh, outside the house. I'm sure, uh, the, the uh, if I recall correctly, the officer did do a cursory examination of the house, but of course, at that point, everything had been so clean and polished that there was nothing to be found. But while they were standing in the driveway discussing, the, the sergeant noted in his report that the garage door was open, and he noticed a number of bags of lye um, sitting unopened in the garage. Now, the, the lie has two sorry, lime, not lye. Uh, uh, lime is used as an amendment to soil when you're trying to uh, break up uh, you know, heavy uh, clay-like soil to um, uh, loosen it up sufficiently that you can do some decent landscaping. And the other purpose is to uh, help disguise the odor of a dead body. Now, the yard, um, and many years later when uh, we were out there to examine this in greater depth, we saw the same conditions the, the, the sergeant at the time that, noted that the yard was in great disrepair uh, and that the soil was very clay-like, very hard soil. And, again, many years later when when we were out there to do a, another investigation into this, we saw essentially the same conditions. It almost looked as though uh, no one had ever done anything to this yard in 30 or 40 years. So the purpose of these bags of lime should have triggered uh, a lot more interest by the police at that point but it's just listed in the in the sergeant's report as kind of a passing note oh. but
0: but in, in at the same time they did dig up the yard years later and nothing was found and nothing was evident that there had been a body other than a dog buried in that yard
3: yeah that's correct yeah,
0: yeah. so go ahead um joan um about oh, we were talking about the timeline. We just had gotten to uh, okay. Um, that the house had been repainted.
2: Yeah. Um, as as you had mentioned, when her friend Shelley, who was the closest to her, had been trying to call, she knew it was about time for Joel to leave, and she wanted to check in to see how things were going. And nobody answered the phone. It rang and rang all weekend. I think Thursday and Friday she had tried. No answer at all. And on Sunday, Joel had. Um, finally answered in the evening and told her that Dottie had disappeared. And she asked if, you know, he had reported to the police, and he said yes. So after she hung up, she called the Concord police, and they had no report of it. And I think it was the next day, as you had mentioned on Monday, that he reported it. But I believe he reported it to the BART police. And it was the BART police who contacted the Concord police. And in the meantime, Shelly and and Diane were calling everyone that they knew that also knew Dottie. And no one had heard from her at all. So the the same officer that had investigated the um, Thanksgiving Day assault um, back in 81 was also the officer called in to investigate her disappearance. So he knew them. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to criticize the police or what they did or didn't do, but it was a time when, you know, it was the ERA was discussions are very active. A lot of women were suddenly leaving their husbands that maybe had never considered it before. And I think they treated this as just, you know, another woman who's left her husband, mm-hmm. you know, had, had gotten liberated and left her, left her husband, but. You know. Um, And, yes, Diane shows up to talk to Joel, find out more, and finds him loading the moving van. Um, And he's allowed to leave, and he goes off to Salt Lake. And um, I think pretty much the case went cold, except for Diane and and Dottie's friends, of course, that were desperately still trying to find her. And um, was it two years later that... Um, they contacted
0: you. Yes, it was. Um, they contacted my agency in the fall. I think it was October of 1986. So we're already 18 months, almost 18 months later. Um, but
2: but amazingly, you were able to find out a, a lot of information, including the fact that in December of '84. Jewel had gotten engaged to a woman in New Mexico and/or Colorado area, and had purchased wedding rings. Yeah, and, were
0: pla- and we but we can't take credit for that because what happened in um, October or November of 1987, Unsolved Mysteries ran a program on Dottie, the missing person of Dottie, and oh, yeah. interviewed Jewel, interviewed Diane, the sister, uh, interviewed me. Um, And as a result of that program, somebody from Colorado called in and said, huh, he looks just like the guy my neighbors engaged to. Uh, So one thing led to another. That person was found. She was contacted. We actually brought her to California from Colorado and spent one entire day interviewing her, uh, me and the – officer from the, the sergeant from the BAR police, and the Concord detective. And, yes, it turned out that he was engaged to her for about a year prior to Dottie's disappearance. She produced letters from him. She produced receipts for the engagement and wedding ring. They, had a, they actually had a wedding date planned. So, there was, so this was all very interesting, and she was quite credible.
2: Yes. And Joel, just as, you know, years before he had never told Dottie that he was married, he had never told her that he was married or that his wife had disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has a very interesting story to tell about how she found out about it. Um, she, had, she had a six, six-year-old son, she did. and she had gone to his house in um, Utah for Christmas, And um, he went to pick up his now adult daughter who was visiting. And the daughter notices the engagement ring on the woman's hand and asks about it. And she says, you know, your father and I are engaged and we're getting married. And she turns and says, how can you get married when he's still married and his wife is missing?
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and actually, just, let me just add, before that, when he's on his, when he is leaving, Dottie's in the kitchen cooking, or Dottie, I'm sorry, um, not Dottie, this, this woman, we're not gonna name her, uh, was in the kitchen cooking dinner, and he is on his way to pick up his daughter at the train station, I believe, and he says he's gonna leave, and then he comes back and he says, he says to her, oh by the way, um, Um, I'm married and my wife is missing. So that's all she knew. And then he leaves and goes to pick up his daughter. And then this conversation that you're talking about, Joan, happens after dinner, after Jewel has gone to bed, and they're sitting talking and spent several hours into the middle of the night talking about this.
2: Yeah, and I believe he had not unpacked a lot of the boxes that had Dottie's things in them and they went through some of them and this woman found a calendar that Dottie had kept and it showed uh, dates circled that she had been, it coincided with the times that she had been with Joel and so she knew that Dottie had been aware something was going on and I should also backtrack that at at the time that Dottie disappeared that those few days in there Joel had been scheduled to go to Colorado. I, actually, I think the woman was still in New Mexico at that time, but maybe not. Anyway, had been scheduled to go spend the weekend with her before moving on to Utah. And he called her and told her that he wasn't going to be able to make it, that the renters at his property had killed a dog and there was blood everywhere and he needed to clean it up.
0: Mm-hmm. But he had no
2: rental
3: property. There was that detail, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, he had no rental property, right. uh, just the only, the house that he was living in. And and the, this woman had never had his home address. She only communicated with him by letter through a, a post office mailbox um, and his cell phone. Well, no, not his cell phone, because he didn't have a cell phone. So I don't know how. they must have been a work phone, now that I, I don't yeah. remember that. Um, yeah, because she, she also worked for the Forest Service. And let me also say that when the... Uh, Police were putting pressure on him. At one point, um, they had asked him to take a polygraph, and his refusal was quite dramatic. He wrote them a letter, 12 pages, in red ink, which I thought I always thought was strange. Um, of all the reasons that he shouldn't or wouldn't take a polygraph. And. Frankly, I mean, I, I always say that if, if, my, if somebody from my family was missing and I was a suspect and I wasn't involved, I would take a polygraph in a hot second. Yeah. But he refused. So, so as a result um, of Joan getting involved, actually when Chandra Levy disappeared years later, right? That I was, met Joan and I met. Uh, because Joan was looking into writing an article about missing women that had not been resolved in the Bay Area. And Dottie, I think, was one of three.
2: Um, I actually right? think there were just two. Two? Okay. Um, Lou Ellen Burley from Pleasant Hill had disappeared in 1977, and only recently has her remains been found. And um, the so-called I-5 serial killer, Roger Reese Kibbe, has Confessed to killing her.
0: Okay. All right.
2: But, yes, I met with you and with Diane, and, you know, you guys are telling me the story, and I'm sitting there yeah. thinking,
3: like, why is, yeah, why is
2: it's the husband. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, it just seemed so obvious that, you know, he would be at least the strongest suspect.
0: And all, um, the, and all the roads led no matter what we did, I, no matter what investigation we did. And, and now, you know, here we are. We've been involved in this um, 20 Seven twenty-eight years, no matter how, what direction we went or the police went or anybody that was involved, all the roads always led back to Joel. We looked yeah. for every other possibility. Yeah. We even considered that she might have gone missing on her own and was homeless in San Francisco or someplace else, and we pursued all those avenues.
2: Yeah, I've talked with Joel a few times to get you know his comments or his story for for my stories, and he's always maintained that Dottie threatened to do this to him, to to go missing and make it look like he did something to her, to make his life miserable. And the first night that I called him um, when I was doing that first story. I, you know, I was trying to be sympathetic and, and fair and I had said, you know, it must be really terrible for you have ever, after having interviewed Diane and seeing how upset she still is over the disappearance of her sister. So, you know, it must be really difficult to, uh, you know, all these years not knowing what happened. And he tells me, not really until you brought it up, I'd forgotten about it.
0: Yeah. Amazing. And, and so as a result of your article about, uh, Dottie and this other woman, Joan, uh, Detective Kurt Messick of the Concord Police Department promised to reopen the case. Now, of course, this would have, this was 2000, what? 2002. 2001? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So it didn't happen. And what, four years, three years later? Four years. Four years later, Joan calls, calls me and says she's gotten, that she wants to write an article. She wants to write a series of articles about this case. That it has haunted her since she first heard about it. That she had gone to her editor and gotten permission to write the story. And her stories were powerful. And I believe there were five or six stories in sequential days. And they... Just blew open the case, and the Concord Police Department got involved. Um, They were very kind in letting naughty who's here with us, and I, involved. So we had a command center at the Concord Police Department where we distributed tasks, and they brought in a couple other people and and Detective Messick and Sergeant Judy Moore, who was the person in charge at the time. they followed every lead, every single solitary lead, and got to the point where Judy wrote something like a 40-page search warrant.
2: For, oh, it was massive.
0: It was amazing for <laughs> his house because we did, we got it. We got the um, we got the search warrant for the Concord house. They, they dug up the Concord property. They did all kinds of things in the house. But, of course, by this time, things had been replaced. It had been rented multiple times. You know, there, was, there was a lot of lot going on. And, of course, it had been um, 20 years by that time since Dottie's disappearance. And, um, but they, she did get a search warrant for his Salt Lake City house. And they took it to the judge in Salt Lake City who denied them the search warrant. And that was where the cases ended. The search warrant was denied. Um, the judge, On the opinion, the judge says that he wasn't going to allow them to go on a fishing ex- expedition. And that's where we are. Dottie's still missing. Noddy and I, you can say Naughty, we spent a lot of time in um, Jules' hometown of Lindsay, California, talking to his former classmates and relatives, and so forth. You want to talk about that for a minute?
3: That was a, quite an interesting episode. Um, we learned an enormous amount about the young Jewel Kaler um, that really kind of lent itself even further to uh, uh, the, the mystery here of, of the location of, of Dottie. Um, he was purportedly uh, a person who liked to play at being a survivalist.
0: Yeah, Dottie, can I can I, inter- I inter- excuse me? Can I interrupt for a minute? Sure. We need to take another break. I'm sorry to okay. interrupt. We'll return we momentarily, Nadi and John.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Kelly Callie at cali piorg or call 1-800-350-CALI. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. IRB Search is where quality matters. IRB provides access to the best online data for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB data gives you strength in numbers, allowing you to access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PI's Declassified, and you'll receive a two-week free trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112. One, two, to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler.
0: Donnie Kaler disappeared June 12, 1985, never to be seen again. With me today are private investigator Nadi Bumbo and crack newspaper reporter Joan Morris. Nadi, you were just talking about we, you and I spent some time in Lindsay, actually several trips to Lindsay, which is uh, Lindsay is a uh, small community in the central uh, valley of California, uh, almost to Bakersfield, south of Fresno, in case anybody wants to know where, there are, where it is. And uh, we spent some time there. I wanted to talk about it.
3: Well, one of the things we learned was that he was a bit of a survivalist as a young as a young boy actually, and he would often go up into the foothills to the east of town uh, sometimes for days at a time carrying his his shotgun he would uh, live off the land he was able to uh, uh you know skin and cook a, a rabbit you know without uh, any effort uh purportedly at one time uh, figured out from books how to descent a skunk and then proceeded to do so um, he he had uh, the reports we've got from some of his classmates at that time is that he was uh, his parents were uh, weird, strange, different, oddballs kind of folks. Um, and he himself uh, apparently, uh, when he had a job working in one of the orchards out there at one point, his mother was so uh, attached to him that she'd actually come and bring him water personally, uh, such that uh, he would be so embarrassed he wouldn't often not tell her where he was working. He later went on to. Uh, UC Berkeley into the uh, entomology department, where he became somewhat of an expert on uh, the area on the subject of remote sensing of um, uh, infestation of forests, of various types of uh, pests. Mm -hmm. He then went on to become, um, uh, as you mentioned earlier, um, uh, part of the U.S. Forest Service under those uh, particular auspices. The other thing we learned about him that was quite interesting is that he actually had another piece of property up in southern, southeastern Oregon. And um, that property was never built on. and It was a rather unusual um, uh, piece of property in that uh, some of the people who lived around there who we managed to get hold of indicated that they'd only seen him there one time uh, walking. Uh, they had, he had to walk across someone else's property to get to his because there was no direct road into it. Um, so this is a person who's had who has incredible um, ability to be out in the in the wilderness. He, as part of the Forest Service, he spent a lot of time uh, up in the Sierras at a, um, uh, a Forest Service um, uh, experimental forest uh, that was quite large. So he really knew his way around the woods. Um, uh, he had access to, you know, his parents' house in Lindsay. He had access to this piece of property up in Oregon, and. He had five days. So essentially what we have here is a guy who is reported to be very smart by nearly everyone who knew him, uh, incredibly physically adept, um, apparently was able to bench press 300 pounds in high school. So this is a a person who um, is used to finding things that are hidden, or we could infer from that uh, hiding things that need to be.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
3: So, I think that we yeah. have uh, we also have some several reports from classmates of his at u c Berkeley as his being a uh, somewhat strange person at one point uh, one person has reported that he was uh, walking on campus when Jules jumped out from some bushes and to surprise him uh, uh, how, uh, yelling like a bear is the way it was put yeah.
0: course being strange doesn't make you a killer
3: no. Right uh, but what we 're trying to be, people
0: might we're say i 'm strange yeah we 're
3: trying to get a picture of his overall
0: um,
3: uh, person persona and how he he goes about things. Right. I mean the fact that um, there was also the story we heard that um, uh, somewhere in that five days or or somewhat shortly after uh, he reports the disappearance, he takes a trip down to Lindsay, purportedly carrying a carpet from the house to deliver to his mother 's house so mm-hmm you know again we have all these little bits of information that none of which adds up to anything specific but all of which starts to paint a picture that makes it really hard to not to not look at him you know with with a great deal of interest
0: well and and again it comes back to that because nothing was done immediately and it was several months before um law enforcement really got involved i mean um it, you know, a lot was lost, or a lot of leads that could have been followed up. They did call the mom, she did verify he was there, but that really does, doesn't mean anything. Right. And then we didn't get in un- until a year and a half later. so there was I mean, we did a lot, but it's very frustrating.: It's yeah. very frustrating. she's She's still missing, and um, her parents have passed away. Both of her parents; they were, of course, quite distraught. Um, you know, her friends are off on um, their other lives, but there's still her her sister who mourns her, her disappearance. She was declared dead uh, in the middle 2000s. There was a uh, an actual hearing declaring her deceased. So. But that th- that is... was at the request of Diane, right? Right. Was at the request of Diane. Um, yes. yes. I think. There it, wasn't there some
3: you know, uh, objection to that by Jewel? Yes. As I recall, yes. There
0: was.
2: Yeah, I think it's kind of important to add to the you know total picture is that he never well he did divorce her when um, he was facing retirement and he wanted to um, have his the woman he's been with these last 20-some-odd years, be the beneficiary of his retirement, um, and otherwise Dottie would have been. So he, he got a divorce, which has been overturned. He claimed that she deserted the marriage, but then the judge said, oh, well, wait a minute, and so then she was declared dead. So, and he also still owns the
0: house. Yes, he does. He still owns the house. I uh, still lives in the Salt Lake City area, as far as I know, and he's, re- of course, retired from the Forest Service. And, um, and of course, always what was significant was that he is a scientist, he is an etymologist by uh, training, and... He's also a pilot. And he's also a pilot. Yeah, he hadn't mentioned that. He's also a pilot. Um, you know, all of those avenues were, were attempted to be pursued, but once again... When you start on a case that's cold for 18 months, it's real hard to do anything. Cold cases are very difficult. Now we have DNA, but even then we wouldn't have had, even on that case, there's no DNA to check. So here we are, very frustrated, (laughs) all of us, all three of us. (laughs) Yes.
3: Yeah, there's no other way to describe it, really.
0: Yeah, and uh, it's unfortunate. Diane, her sister, would love to have this resolved in some form when you're in limbo as a family member when you have a missing person it never goes away it never gets resolved it's very difficult you see people differently you look at people and think is that my sister you see somebody walking down the street could that be her what would she look like today all of the things that go through your mind when you know somebody well, as you would your sister. And this is her younger sister, so there's a special affinity for a younger sister. So we would like to have this resolved, and if there's anybody listening, anybody at all that's listening that has even the slightest little tip, I would love to hear from you. You can contact me at Francie at PISdeclassified.com. I would be happy to communicate with you. Uh, It doesn't matter how small the information, little the information is. We have periodically over the years gotten good leads that were followed up on. Every lead is followed up on. So please, if you know anything, please contact me. I would so much appreciate it and we will deal with it accordingly. So, Nadi and... Joan, thank you so much for being with us today. Is there anything else you'd like to say, Joan?
2: Um, just that, you know, Joel has never been accused officially. He is a person of interest. And although all roads point to him, if, like he said, Dottie did disappear, if someone has any information about that, we just we want resolution to this case, whatever that resolution is.
0: Absolutely. How about you, Nani? What, what do you have
3: to I say? echo Joan. I think that uh, the most important thing is, is finding Dottie. Um, you know, whether whether it points to Jewel ultimately, whether uh, it points to someone else, that's almost beside the point at this point. Uh, the most important thing is to try to find out what actually happened to Dottie.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yep, that is exactly right and we appreciate, we so much appreciate the Concord Police Department, uh, Sergeant Judy Moore, uh, Detective Kurt Messick and, uh, the other two officers that were involved in the case and did all the hard work on it. I mean, I know that one officer traveled to Florida and did some interviews down there and, and they've really put an incredible amount of time and, uh, we appreciate that. We appreciate the time that that Sergeant Moore put in on writing that search warrant, was, which was just amazing. She worked on it for weeks, <laughs> dotting all the T's and crossing, crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. So um, we very much appreciate that. And uh, so as far as upcoming shows, we have uh, some interesting shows coming up. I have My- Michael Schoen from CBS News next week, Christopher Utley on ge- geological research and then uh, Jennifer Karras-Brown, who's a lawyer and a private investigator, and she's going to be discussing those troubling, he said, she said, sex assault cases. So uh, thank you so much, you guys. Tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators and sometimes investigative reporters. It's CIC Classified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening.
1: NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified.